brought your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. We'll begin reading there in just a moment. Over the years, working with churches, different needs that they had, we would have um, meetings with groups of people who were key leaders in a church, and in that capacity, were often looked to by the rest of the congregation for guidance and help as they were thinking through some of the needs that they were facing as a congregation. And not all churches are blessed, as Wynn Baptist has been, with so many wonderful works of God and people of God. And so when we would have those meetings, one thing I would always do is light a candle. And um, you say, well, that's kind of odd. Well, we did, because the candle, as we would meet and talk about matters related to the church, was intended to represent the presence of God, the presence of God. And one of the things you and I can easily forget, even on a Sunday morning in a worship service where we have just sung to him, is that he is present. And we want to give our full attention and our full heart to him as he speaks to us through his word. The title of this morning's message is Keep Your Heart Tender Towards the Lord. And this is the second in a four-part study. We're, thought, we're talking about faith as a topic, but we're calling it a series called Defining Moments. Defining Moments are those moments that we saw by definition, and this is just by way of review. What is a defining moment? A defining moment determines whether you will experience or miss God's plan for your life because at that moment, God is speaking. And you have to respond. And how you respond is oh so very important to what happens in the remainder of your life. One of the great defining moments in the Old Testament, for example, was when the people of God in Numbers 13 and 14 were at Kadesh Barnea, the very edge of their entry into the promised land. They had been delivered by God mightily from the greatest nation on the planet at that time, Egypt. And they had passed through the Red Sea and God had defeated their enemies. And they had survived the wilderness. They had gone to Mount Sinai. God had given them everything necessary for him to dwell among them in the tabernacle and now he was ready to deliver them into the promised land and they sent out spies 12 spies to go and travel through the land and take a close look at it and come back and report to the congregation if you look carefully at different places where that's described their purpose was to define the best way of entry into the promised land for their people not to decide whether they would go or not go. And they come to that moment, and the spies go, and they come back. And if you're a student of the Scripture, you know what happens next. Ten of those spies give a negative report. They are the majority report, and they say the people in the land are too big. They, 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 it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, there's wonderful things there, but we we would experience great disaster if we try to go in to this promised land. Two men 
gave a minority report. Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it. Don't hesitate. Trust God. We can do this. The people wept all night long. They were absolutely terrified by the majority report. They they refused to go into the promised land. And they questioned the leadership of Moses. And it says that Moses fell on his face when the people did that. God appears in the tabernacle and he speaks. He's ready to take the whole nation and wipe them out and start over again with Moses, who is his friend. Moses intercedes for the people and says, Lord, for your namesake, you have been the one that's delivered this people. Don't, don't, please do this to the people. It would damage your name. It would damage your reputation. And God speaks, and in Numbers 14, he says, all right, I'll not destroy them. And he says, I'll forgive them. But then he says this, they will never go into the promised land. And everyone in that generation that said, we can't do it, dropped in the wilderness over the next 40 years. The book of Hebrews is shaped by that story. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, the story is captured in Psalm 95, and there's a quotation there. And in fact, it's so significant that it's repeated three times over the next two chapters. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he's talking about Kadesh Barnea. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you, Christians, any of you, an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. And the great warning passages in Hebrews are drawn from that statement. There are these defining moments in our life where we know God is speaking and God is leading us, God is prompting us, God is directing us. And in that moment, I have to make a choice. Well, I say, yes, yes, God, whatever you call me to do, wherever you call me to go, the answer is yes. Or will I step back or fall away or fall back? And the absolute terrifying thing he says is today, if you hear his voice, the way it's translated there, he's speaking. If you are hearing his voice, today if you're hearing his voice, harden not your heart, which raises the possibility that you can do that. Obviously, the hardening comes from a failure to trust him in that moment. What is a hardened heart? A hardened heart is no longer sensitive or responsive to God's voice. The more I say yes, the more tender my heart. The more I say no, 
the harder my heart. How do you make your heart hard? You can harden your heart if you repeatedly refuse to trust God when he speaks to you. And so the question that's raised in my mind as we come back to Hebrews 11 is how can I maintain a tender heart before the Lord? How can I be intentional? How can I do this on purpose? How can I keep my heart tender before him? And this passage that we're going to be reading starting in verse 8, Abraham and Sarah are the central figures and Abraham's referred to more than anybody else in this chapter, some ten times. And, and Abraham and Sarah and the generation that's referenced here are described as persons who by faith, in their defining moments, by faith they said yes to God. And by saying yes to God at that moment, they kept their hearts tender. And in each of these moments, these defining moments, more than any other described in this chapter, we can learn something about how to keep our heart tender. How can we keep our heart tender when God speaks? Number one, by going instead of staying. By going instead of staying. Listen to verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Now humanly speaking, Abraham had every reason to disregard the word that he heard from God. In Genesis 12, 1, it explains that he was being asked to leave his country and his family everything that he knew it was one of the great cities of his age where he lived he was 75 years old I hope you heard that 75 it's not easy to leave a place or a people that we love several years ago at the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, we needed someone to do a particular job on the team that I supervised. And I had met a man earlier named Bill Bullington. Some of y'all may know Bill, but Bill served for 39 years in West Africa with IMB. And he had become a, a regional kind of coordinator and supervisor for that whole region. 39 years. And he had come back to Arkansas, where he was from. And he had retired in Hot Springs. And I called him up. He's 70 years old at that moment. I called him up and I said, Bill, I got something I want you to pray about. Would you pray about coming and serving with us during the State Convention and doing this particular job? And at first he said, well, Don, I just retired. I just retired. I, I've served with IMB 39 years and, and we really have been looking forward to doing this in Hot Springs. I said, I, I understand, Bill. I fully understand. I'm just asking you to pray about it. He said, okay, but right now, he said, if you find someone else, go ahead. And, uh, and I kept looking, and, and it never, never was the right person. And then I got a phone call about six weeks later, and it was Bill. <laughs> and Bill said, you know, is that position still available? I said, it sure is. He said, well... I think I need to talk to you about it. And he came in and we talked about it. We went through the whole process of becoming part of our uh, staff. And we got down to the very last step. The very last step for him was to go before our operating committee that approved all new hires at the state. And he's sitting in the office. They're meeting. They're, they're doing some other business. And he's sitting in my office with me with his wife, Evelyn. 
And I look at him, and I look at this man who's already given so much of his life to serving the Lord. And I said, Bill, I said, I just need to say this to you. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. And at that moment, his wife reaches out and punches him in the shoulder and says, that's what I've been telling him. <laughs> but of course, he had to do it because he had that sense of call. And he, and he came to work for us at age 70, and he had five birthdays with us as he worked among Arkansas Baptist churches. Left everything, 70 years old, set it all aside to do what God was calling him to do. The word obeyed here, by, by faith Abraham obeyed, literally means that Abraham listened. It means he listened on what God was saying. He, he hung on God's words. He listened. And, and that explains his obedience. He heard God. He recognized that God was speaking. And like Noah, he heard God in that defining moment because clearly Abraham had been a kind of man in the years that the Scripture does not talk about who had sought God, had tried to understand God, had walked with God. And that's the greatest preparation for that defining moment. For that to happen, there needs to be a couple of habits that you need to form in your life. One of those is personal time alone with God. How will you know when God is speaking if you do not spend regular time alone with God? It is so vital. Regular time where you're reading the Scripture, not to just check off a reading plan, but to read the Scripture and, and waiting for those moments when God speaks to you through His Word, where there's a phrase or a statement or a story that reaches out and grabs your heart and your heart burns because you know God has spoken. When you do that daily, you spend time alone with God. You are in the best possible training mode for the defining moment. There's another habit you need to cultivate. The inner conversation with God goes beyond the daily time alone with God. It's that, that you're meeting with someone, you're talking to someone else, you're going about your business, you're driving down the road, you're doing whatever you do throughout your day. And in those moments, your heart goes to an inner conversation with him. And you're talking to him. We call it prayer, but that's all prayer is. It's talking to him. And you're listening. And there's a conversation. And you're alert and you're sensitive and you're paying attention to those moments when God brings something to mind and God brings someone to mind and God puts something on your heart and you act on that. Those two disciplines, those two habits, spending time alone with God and an inner conversation with God will put you in the best possible position to say yes when God says go. A tender heart is maintained when you go, when God says go. But you can also keep your tender heart, secondly, by leaving instead of demanding the details. By leaving instead of demanding the details. Look at the last phrase of verse 8. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Not only did Abraham go instead of stay, but when he left, he was willing to do so with very little information. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how long it would take. He didn't know when they would arrive. He didn't know what he would need. He went out not needing to know where he was going. It wasn't something necessary inside of him that he had all the facts and all the details. Sometimes we approach God wanting to know his will. God, what do I do? 
Do I take this job or wait for something better? Do I marry this person or wait for something better? We want to know his will, but we are not really wanting to know him. And he wants to enter a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants to be close to you. When you condition your answer on whether you have the details, you are saying to the Lord, I'm not so sure about you, Lord. Are you going to take care of me? Are you able to take care of me? I need more information first. After Gail and I finished school, one of the first times we encountered this kind of experience was serving as a student pastor at a church in the Mississippi Delta, and it was going really well. And, and we had applied to serve with our home mission board, it was called then, now it's the North American Mission Board, but we had applied to serve with our home mission board. And at each step in the process, we had had to adjust or do something different. When they first came to us, they offered us Baltimore to start a church in the Baltimore area. Because I was raised in a Christian tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, there were a lot of Roman Catholics in Baltimore. I thought, well, that would be a natural fit. And said, sign us up. And then they came back to us later and they said, well, we really need someone in California. Would you consider Beverly Hills? Beverly Hills? Well, I, don't, I, you know, I was raised Catholic. That makes sense to go to Baltimore. But I have not, never had a lot of money. I don't know about Beverly Hills. And we changed. And then as the, the months progressed and it came down to the wire, we finally got our appointment letter and we got notice of what they were going to pay us to go to California. And it was woefully inadequate. You say, well, is that because you need a lot of money? No. It was $900 a month at the time. And that's not a lot of money today. It was not a lot of money then, especially if you're going to move to Beverly Hills, California. And so one of the first things I did, being the intelligent, crafty person that I am, is I went down to the local public library, and I got the most current issue of the Los Angeles Times. Young people, that was before the Internet. That was called... Research. That was, that was an ancient form of Googling information. And I went to the library. I pulled the most recent copy of the Los Angeles Times. And I went to the classified section. And I looked for apartments in the vicinity of where we needed to be. And I had a map of Los Angeles. And I was looking at the apartments, looking at the location, looking at the church where we were going to be using as a base for starting new churches. And, and, and I found a place in Hollywood, which wasn't too far away. And it was like $475 a month or something, $500 a month. I thought, boy, that seems reasonable. We'll be, it'll be tight, but we, we might be able to eat by it, just me and her. And so I called up the man who was, who was going to be my supervisor there. And he became a father in the Lord to me. But at the time, he was just a deep voice on the other end of the phone. I called him up and I said, I said, Bob, would you do something for me? We're, we're planning this, this move and we're trying to figure out everything about it. And the, the board sent us this letter. And so we're looking at this apartment. And he said, where is it? And I gave him the address. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And then I heard this low, rumbling 
laughter. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of rude. And he said, you, you don't want to live there. I said, well, well, we can afford that. He said, no, you don't want to live there. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, there's an apartment across the street that's coming open. It's going to be about $775 a month. Now, you do the math on that. And I said, Bob, I can't afford that apartment. He said, he said, well, and this was his great counseling technique. He said, well, you just need to decide whether or not God wants you to come. I said, okay, that's kind of cold. Hung up, began to pray. Agonizing, Lord, is this a closed door? And I'm, I'm in my, I'm barely 20 you know, 22 years old. Lord, is this a closed door? Are you calling us to go through this in faith? Or is this a door we're supposed to back away from? And I'm wrestling with it and I'm struggling with it. And I get a call from a friend. And he had gone about three years earlier to serve with the same home mission board. And he said, Don, I just felt led to call you. I hadn't talked to him in weeks. Just felt, felt led to call you. And he said, Don, the Lord had told me to tell you that when he leads you somewhere, he's going to take care of you. And I said, Mark, did the Lord tell you that? Yep, that's it. He said, I don't know why I'm supposed to call and tell you that. But when God leads you somewhere, he's going to take care of you. I said, gee, thanks, Mark. And I hung up. And God confirmed in my heart that we were to go. And we went. And we got that apartment that went up. <laughs> and they required first month's rent and last month's rent and a deposit in advance three times all up front and it just kept getting better and better and we stayed out there for several years and when we first went out there we were finding ourselves trusting the Lord for about 30% of our income every month we never knew where it was coming from never knew and about two years in it shifted um, actually, it was 25%. Then it went to a third. It got worse. And, and our needs grew, and, and we were put more and more in a position of having to trust him. And can I tell you that throughout our duration of that experience, every single month, everything we needed came in like clockwork. And he provided. And he provides. And so when God says, go, you and I should go. And when he says to leave, we can't stay, and we don't have to know the details. We don't know how I'm going to pay for everything. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this or that. I don't know how I'm going to do this ministry. I don't know anybody there. I don't even know where to begin. God will take care of you. So a tender heart requires a, a sensitivity to his voice, a willingness to go instead of stay. It also requires a resting in him who he is, leaving without details. But a tender heart is also kept by, thirdly, by staying instead of running away. By staying instead of running away. Look at verse 9. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Sometimes God calls us to stay where we are, and our desire is actually to get away from that place. We want to get away from that. It may be a job that I don't like. 
It may be a place that I don't like. It may be a spouse that I don't like. But God is calling us to stay, and I know that he's calling me to stay. Abraham illustrates leaving home by faith. He also, at this moment, illustrates staying put by faith. It says he lived in tents as a stranger, as in a foreign country. He had no connections. He didn't fit in. He worshiped one God. Everybody else around him worshiped other gods, many gods. He did not fit in. He only owned, the only land he ever owned was the burial plot for his wife, Sarah. Yet he stayed. He stayed. Why? Look at verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. A city in that day and time was a place to live with others. It was a whole economic system. It was secure. It was stable. In modern times, that has not been lost very much. A place to live with others, to be accepted, to feel connected, to find meaning. When we lived in Los Angeles, one of the things that we noticed was that most of the people we met, at least in the part of Los Angeles we lived in, were not from California. Most of the people we met were from other places. Frank Lloyd Wright, famous architect, once said, the whole continent is on a tilt and everything loose rolls into Los Angeles. And I think there was a lot of truth to that. And we met aspiring actors and actresses and people in the entertainment business and all kinds of folks. And, and one thing they had in common was this. They were either running from something back home or they were running to something that they thought existed in Los Angeles. Running from or running to. But Abraham didn't run. He's an alien. He has no place. He has no connections. But he stays. This city that he's waiting for has two characteristics. First, it's a city with foundations, it says. Suggesting that no other city has foundations. Now, he left Ur. He left a city where every building there had foundations. It's not talking about literal foundations. He's saying, I want a city that has foundations. No other place, no place on earth has the foundations, has what I'm looking for, has what I need. A city with foundations. And then it's a city that God designs and builds. It's not man-made. My real home, he's saying, is not here. It's a place that he is building. The key to staying is waiting. And the key to waiting is a deep conviction that there is no place, no other circumstances where I can go that can satisfy me. Being in the center of his will is the place where I need to be. So tender heart requires sensitivity to his voice, a resting in him, a confidence that my greatest happiness is found in the place he has for me so I can wait. But number four, a tender heart requires waiting on him instead of making it happen without him. Waiting on him. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also conceived strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. Innumerable is the sand which is by the seashore. 
This passage says Sarah's body was physically unable to reproduce. Later in verse 12 and in Romans 4, it says the same thing about Abraham's body. And they were absolutely unable to conceive and to carry and to bear a child. It's a dangerous moment. It's a defining moment, but it's also a dangerous moment. God said, and it's not happening right now. God promised, but what he promised is not here right now. So I've got to do something, right? I've got to to make it happen. Maybe God wants me to make it happen. Maybe God is calling me to do something. What's the opposite of waiting? It's not waiting. And Abraham, Sarah tried that. And if you're a Bible scholar, you know the name Ishmael was the result of that effort to make it happen, and nothing came of that but absolute disaster and pain and suffering and hardship for millions and millions of people through the ages. When we try and manufacture God's will, we only make it worse. We used to have cars that always broke down. Maybe you have one of those. I hated car repairs. I hate car repairs. How many of you hate car repairs? Yeah, look at that. I hate car repairs. And I had a, we had an old Buick. And the water pump went out on the Buick. And um, I, I can fix some things. And I had, I had been around when water pumps had been replaced. And so I thought, I can do this. So I went, I went to the carport. I lifted the hood on that, that Buick. And I got my toolbox. And I started breaking down everything that was holding the water pump to the engine. This is not hard. There's just a bolt there, bolt there. Uh, it won't come off. There must be another one. I found another one. Disconnected the hoses, took the belt off, did all those things. I got this. And it was fully disconnected. And then I realized that there was a, a rod that went all the way to the side of the housing where the motor sat. And there was about this much clearance. There was no way, no way that water pump was coming off of that rod and out of the engine area. That car had been designed to where the only way you could get the water pump off was to lift the entire motor out. I'm beat. I'm I'm beat. I took all the parts, I put them in a box. I had my car towed to a mechanic. I even asked for a discount since I had already broken it down. He didn't give me a discount. (laughs) He said, I got to figure out where all these pieces go. And so in trying to do it myself, I only made matters worse. I had to hand it off to someone else. I got to realize I cannot control God. I can't control God. If I could control God, he would not be in control of the rest of the universe. You know that? If I could do it, he wouldn't be in charge. I would be. What a mess. How do you keep your heart tender in those moments when you're powerless? I've got to rush and embrace the all-powerful God. I've got to trust him. I've got to lean on his power and trust fully in him. A tender heart requires a sensitivity to his voice, a resting in him, a confidence that my greatest happiness is found in the place he has for me, and then a leaning on the power of God. But number five, a tender heart requires me to face death expectantly instead of fearfully. By facing death expectantly instead of fearfully. 
verse 13. It's like a little insertion in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And he drops this in to make a statement. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What's interesting in all these verses, have you noticed it says, by faith, Noah did this, by faith, Abraham did this, by faith, Enoch did this, and so forth. Each of those use of the word faith is using faith or talking about faith as an instrument. It's talking about the instrumentality. By the instrumentality of faith, they did these things. They accomplished these things. This is totally different. He's not using faith as an instrument, as a means by which something else happens. He's talking about the manner. He's saying these people died believing. Faith for them was an environment. It was the way they lived. It was also the way they died. When that moment came where their last bit of consciousness was leaving this existence, that last breath, that last moment, when all of that was going away, at that very moment they were still believing. One of the striking qualities of a defining moment, it's a moment that, that disturbs me, causes me to think about my whole life. When you have a defining moment, it does that to you. It makes you think about everything. What am I doing? What matters? What counts? Why am I here? And there's no more ultimate question than to say, I'm here, but I know this isn't going to last forever. Everyone here is terminal. Every one of us is not getting out of this existence without some kind of transition to another. It shakes us up. There's a story told about a lumberjack who's going into a section of forest, and he knows He's going to cut down every tree in that place over the next few weeks. And as he's getting ready to set up, he's getting ready to work, he notices a mother bird up in a tree trying to build a nest. And so he goes over to where she's trying to build the nest, and he takes his axe, and he walks up to that tree, and he beats it against the bottom of the tree, rattling her to the, out of her mind. She's saying, what is this guy doing? He's beating on my tree while I'm trying to build a nest. And she says, I'm going to move. And so she goes to another tree, and he sees her go to another tree. So he walks over to that tree, and he takes his axe, and he does the same thing again. He beats it against the tree, <laughs> rattling her brains, bird brain. And she says, I've had enough. I'm moving. And so she leaves that tree, and she goes high up on a, on a rocky place, and she begins to build her nest there, and the lumberjack sees that. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew that where she was building her nest, it was all coming down. 
wasn't going to last. Wasn't going to survive in the next few weeks. And so he created a circumstance where she was forced to, to think about that and move. She didn't know why. She didn't fully understand. But he was getting her detached from that tree and the next tree and however many trees it took to get her to let go, to let go of the places where she was trying to build her nest until she built it someplace that was safe and that was sound and that was secure. So many times the defining moments of our life are like that. God is not being mean to you and me. He's not being cruel to you and me. He's trying to get us to let go and peel our fingers off one by one if necessary of the things we're holding on to that are not the things that are going to last. God will not let you, let you build your nest in a sense of security on this earth. He's not. Every tree is coming down, and he trains us to move through defining moments. Finally, number six, we maintain or keep a tender heart by surrendering completely instead of partially. Surrendering completely instead of partially. Listen to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That was a prophecy, that was a promise. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Complete surrender for you and me. We are just not wired to completely surrender to God. We're made to worship him fully, we're made for that, but we have so much baggage, we have the sin monster that we've talked about before, we have so many other things working against us, it is not easy for us to completely surrender. In fact, I would argue that in every instance in Scripture where you see someone fully surrendering to God, it is following or part of a test. A test. And you know the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. I hope you do. God promised him a son. This long-awaited son finally came, and God told him to go and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham loads up the donkey, gets the wood, puts his son there, he, he, and he takes him to sacrifice him. And you know, God intervenes. But what was going through Abraham's mind? All we're seeing is outward obedience. And, and it seemed, it had to seem in that moment for him that God has promised me this. God loves me. And God has said he loves me. He's given me what he's promised. And now he's telling me something, giving me a command that seems to absolutely contradict his promise. Have you ever felt that way? Give it time. So how do you keep your heart tender? Notice in, in verse 19, in my translation, it says he was concluding something. Concluding something. It says, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. It means he was thinking. He was thinking. If you want to wonder, was he unthinking? Was it just blind obedience? No. He was thinking. He was rationalizing. God's promised this. He's commanded this. I don't know what's going to happen. But here was his conclusion. God's got this. He's got this. I don't know how to reconcile it. Maybe he's going to raise him from the dead. Maybe he's going to do something else. I don't know. He was wrong about what he thought. He concluded God could raise him from the dead. He knows he could. He knows he might. 
He didn't have any clue that God was going to come and say, look, here's a lamb. Leave your son be. He didn't know that was going to happen. I don't know how he will do it. But I know who has spoken. And God's got this. When you think you have fully surrendered to him and that you're trusting him completely and nothing can move you, don't be surprised to learn otherwise. I don't care how long you've been walking with God, look how many defining moments this dear man has already had. And when you think he's fully surrendered everything, here comes another test at his age. Well, you know, I lit this candle at the beginning. And I brought something else with me to help me with this. You know, this candle, before I lit it, was pretty hard. And, um, and it is hard. If I whacked you over the head with it, it would hurt. And uh, I'm not going to do that, but, I mean, it's hard. Okay? So I'm going to try to do this without making a mess. If I do, we'll clean it up. Okay? But inside here, the part of the wax that is closest to the flame is not only soft, it's liquid. It's liquid. And as long as it stays close to the flame, it is fluid. It is liquid. But then I can take this wax that is liquid and pour it off. Did that pretty good. And here it is in the bottom of this jar. I'll give it a moment. And what's happening is this liquid is not soft anymore. It's gone hard. Your heart's going to stay tender. You've got to stay near the flame. God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And every time God speaks to you and directs you to do something, and you say yes, it keeps you right near the flame. It keeps you right there. Every time you say no, you lose something. I don't know if that defining moment will be as tragic as what happened to an entire nation at Kadesh Barnea, where they lost the greatest thing God had provided for them on this side of heaven, where they lost the greatest privilege and everything God had in mind for them on this side of heaven. I don't know if that defining moment for you will be that great, but it is serious, and the losses are real. And so when God speaks, every time you say yes, it keeps you right here. It keeps you near the flame. Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response this morning, <clears throat> an opportunity for you in the presence of God to discern what he is saying to you and how he is leading you. And maybe right now at this moment in your life, you are experiencing a defining moment. You know God is speaking to you about some aspect of your life, something he wants you to do, somewhere he wants you to go. Or maybe he's wanting you to stay. Maybe he's wanting you to let go of something. 
Maybe he's asking you just to trust me, even though you don't understand what's happening or what has happened. Trust me. I don't know the nature of your defining moment, but I know the one who has created that moment in your life by speaking to you. And as your brother in Christ, I want to encourage you to stay near the flame by saying yes. The wonderful promise in James 4, 7, where God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God said that. That's his promise. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. How do you need to respond to him? The altar will be open. If you need to come pray about that and it helps you to get up and out and move forward, please take advantage of that. Maybe you need one of us. There'll be pastors standing here at the end of each aisle that need to, that, and you need someone to pray with you. Just come and say, pray for me. You don't have to explain anything unless you want to. Just say, pray for me. These brothers will pray for you. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came into this world to rescue sinners. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the greatest thing separating you from God right now is your own sin. And he loves you and he wants a relationship with you so much that he sacrificed his own son, sending him to the cross, dying for your sins, dying in your place. And all your sins, past, present, and future, can be washed and wiped away by the blood of Jesus if you will turn to him and say, Lord, here I am. I'm trusting you to save me. Forgive me. And for the rest of my life, I want to lean on you, depend on you as you saved me. And if you'll trust Christ today, I want to encourage you to slip out of the pew and come. Make it public. Don't hide it. Don't be ashamed. If you have questions, come and ask these pastors. They'll help you. They'll show you in Scripture. Father God, thank you, Lord, that you've led every person that knows Christ on a journey of faith, just like the people of chapter 11 of Hebrews. And Father, help us to treat with all seriousness and gravity those defining moments when they come. Grant us the sensitivity to recognize those moments. Grant us the strength of heart and mind to draw the same conclusions that Abraham drew. That I may not know how you're going to do it, but I know who is speaking. And Lord, would you lead that person today to surrender who needs to surrender and to put their trust fully in you. We pray in Jesus' name.